right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management, we talk about rehab after surgery, we talk about improved mobility, and we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. All right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. Thank you very much for joining this incredible panel. It's a massive panel. It has a tremendous amount of, well, I don't know, skills and abilities that we're going to be talking a little bit about. <laughs> Novel approach to pain management, which is pretty doggone cool. But before we get into that conversation, I want you to go out to Core Physical Therapy. It's a new look. So if you haven't been out there, it's a new look. And it is... Uh, I'm telling you, it's it's for me who likes to just sort of push pictures and I don't have to uh, read too much. It's right in line. But that is your start to be able to find a core physical therapy location near you or a physical therapist. It is a fabulous, fabulous website. Core physical therapy. Go check it out because they are cool people. All right. Big panel. If you're out there on uh, video, you'll see that it's a big panel. Uh, let's start with a quick little introduction, and I'm going to start with you, Tyler. Just give us a little background on who you are. Yeah, so I'm Tyler Horn. I work for the company Medtronic. Um, it's the company that represents the spinal cord stimulators for Dr. Jane, who's on the panel tonight. Uh, so we, we help people with chronic pain, and uh, I represent that company and help manage those patients. So thank you guys for having us. All right, and that's a handoff to you, Dr. Jane, because you... Your your Zoom does not say doctor anywhere. It's just on Kush. So, pardon me. Same with uh, no, no worries. Lehman. Go for it. Give us a little background. Yeah. Good evening, everybody. My name is Doctor On Kush Jane. Um, I was in the military for five years, or excuse me, ten years. Last five years uh, with the Marine Corps. I was on a Navy scholarship and uh, found myself into East Tennessee after fellowship and uh, dealing with uh, chronic pain patients uh, after doing my interventional pain uh, fellowship in New York City. So uh, my, my interest is uh, really tr tonight to go over what we can, uh, how we can help patients with chronic pain and different modalities and what we do at Pain Medicine Associates here in East Tennessee, along with Medtronic. So excited to be here. Thank you for the privilege of your time, everyone. Well, that's great. And I'm out on uh, Medtronic's uh, website. It's a cool website, too, because I do my own website. I can see the, 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 the care of this particular website. Good. Very cool. All right, Nick, you're next. Hey, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Nick Player. I'm a physical therapist and orthopedic specialist with Cora Physical Therapy. Uh, I've been treating with Cora for the past seven years, currently located in the Tri-Cities of Tennessee. And uh, I'm here to represent physical therapy and what our role is and the approach to managing pain. All right. Once again, thank you very much for being on In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. That is, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation. So, Dr. Rick, it's up to you now to bring it on home. First of all, I want to thank all you guys uh, for your time and your upcoming expertise. And this is a very timely subject because the media has blistered, and I think correctly, opioid overdoses, fentanyl overdoses, and kind of what maybe doctors and some pharmaceutical companies have done to uh, patients and the community at large. So before we kind of get started, Dr. Jane, kind of tell us 
how we got in this mess and talk about talk to us about the opioid crisis a little bit and then talk to us how we get out of this mess yeah so a little background uh I practice in East Tennessee, which is the foothills of Appalachia. And just like you said, a lot of the media has really uh, done a good job on shedding the light of what's happened uh, in our community over the last 30, 40 years when it comes to the opioid epidemic and how traditionally we were trying to solve chronic pain with uh, primarily with opioids. And we've seen on the news uh, in different movies how that's really ravaged uh, a lot of communities. And uh, so what we've really tried to do is approach how we can treat pain through a multi-modality approach. And those, that includes physical therapy, uh, perhaps chiropractor work or acupuncture, along with uh, interventions like epidural steroid injections or peripheral joint injections. Uh, and, and amongst those things, a big piece of why we're here talking today is uh, spinal cord stimulation. And if you think about it, uh, it's been around for a long time, but over the last three to five years, the technology has just really gone through the roof. And I'm really excited for us to share how we can uh, change uh, our approach to pain management to what it, from what it used to be. That's excellent. So, so before we get started, um, Mr. Horn, give us what, what what is a spinal cord stimulator? How how does this whole deal work? Cool. Yeah, great great question. So the, the way it works is it, it's essentially we're 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 providing a little bit of electrical stimulation to treat the patient's chronic pain, whether it's post laminectomy syndrome, chronic pain syndrome. Um, one of the newer indications is diabetic peripheral neuropathy, uh, which is which are tons of un, untreated patients out there. So the way it works, Dr. Jane and them see these patients. They go through a, a rigorous uh, protocol to to get to the point, as he has he just mentioned, to get to a point where they need a trial stimulator. So essentially, they get to test drive this trial stimulator for seven days. And the way it works is, Dr. Jane will use a needle, he'll access the patient's epidural space, he'll slide two leads in that have two, eight, eight to 16 electrodes, depending on you know, whether it's one or two leads. He places those, um, we map the patient out. And what that means is we, I turn the stimulator on once the leads are placed in a certain specific area based on the patient's pain pattern. I turn the stimulator on and the patient will feel a tingling or paresthesia type sensation on where the where it's exactly hitting and that tells us yes we're in the right spot once we do that i turn everything off dr jane sutures everything in and then i teach that patient on how to use the device over a seven-day period so i become that patient's best friend over a seven-day period i ask them hey how are you doing do you have a better quality of life uh the the main goal is to at least cut their pain in half obviously some patients get 90 to 100% pain relief, but I think a realistic expectation is 50 to 80% pain relief. And so based on the questions I ask them every day, um, you know, hey, how are you doing? Are you sleeping better? What quality of life do you have? It, it dictates how I change their programming up, okay? And after that seven-day period, they come in to have those temporary leads removed. Once those are removed, if they've had at least 50% pain relief, then they move on to the second phase of the stimulator, which is the permanent permanent phase. 
Um, so we permanently implant these or Dr. Jane or, and his colleagues do. And then I essentially manage those patients along the, the supervision of Dr. Jane and his staff, um, whether or not we have to adjust them every two or three months. Sometimes I see patients every two to four years. So it's essentially a 10 unit on the spinal cord that eliminates pain, right? Um, it, it's a, it, I, I don't like to compare it to a 10 unit, um, but it, it's a, it, it resonates with the, with the, the patient population around here. They, they seem to understand it that way. So, and Dr. Jane, you can speak to that as well. So Dr. Jane, um, we're going to get back to this in, in one second, but kind of describe your practice. So who, who, who comes in to see Dr. Jane? Is there people that have uh, peripheral neuropathy? Is there people that have failed back surgeries? Is it someone who has, um, CRPS, what, 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 what constitutes your practice? And, and tell us about a typical patient and kind of how you go about treating that patient. Yeah, that's a great question. So our typical uh, patient um, is essentially, we run the gamut of patients, whether they are coming from their primary care doctor, uh, they're coming from their orthopedic uh, doctor or the neurosurgical doctor. Um, and so we were referral only, uh, you know, uh, business. And so we see a lot. And so it can be just like you said, it could be, you know, primarily low back pain uh, that they've dealt with for 10 years uh, on and off uh, with different modalities, like with physical therapy or even epidurals uh, to things like uh, spinal, excuse me, uh, CRPS complex regional pain syndrome and an affected limb, which is um, an, an interesting diagnosis that you do see. Other things that we, we deal with is peripheral neuropathy, whether it be from diabetes or not. And we definitely try all types of modalities to include medications, which are not necessarily all opioid encompassing. There's other types of medications. Um, the typical patient you'll see is above the age of 65 um, and has dealt with, uh, could be multiple back surgeries or even uh, no back surgeries, but content, but has back pain uh, just from the from course of years of either manual labor or being a weekend warrior. Um, and so they come to us. Ultimately, I always try to tell everybody our goal is not to get people pain free, but really to improve their functioning in life. Um, because it's pain as we've, as we've come to understand is a subjective measure when we use the zero to 10 scale. And so kind of what Tyler was alluding to earlier was, you know, how, how have we truly affected your life? Are you able to comb your hair without pain or do gardening or cooking or vacuuming, uh, go on long walks with your, with your animals or your spouse? Those are the things that we're really trying to focus on because that's where you're going to find um, an improvement in happiness uh, with patients. That's awesome. So typically somebody's had two or three back surgeries, they come in. And, and the question I, I kind of asked Tyler, which, uh, I'm going to ask you is you know, basically not the biomechanics of how um, the spinal cord stimulator works, but basically what are you doing? You're, you're putting electrical current next to the spinal cord and, and, and how is that making my pain better? So I, I've had five back surgeries. I've got radiculitis. I've got uh, arachnoiditis. I've got chronic pain. Therapy hasn't helped, which we'll get into in a bit. Um, how does a spinal cord stimulator make me better? Why, why am I better? 
Sure. Yeah. So essentially, you know, the spinal cord is a conduit of nerves that communicate. It's like electrical wiring that goes to your brain. And the way we, the way we deal with pain is by using a spinal cord stimulator, we're modulating those electrical signals before they get to the brain so that your experience of pain is improved. And so um, the spinal cord stimulator electrodes are posterior to the thecal sac, which houses the spinal cord. Um, and so uh, you're placing those leads in the epidural space um, which is a potential space. So it's safe for those leads to go. And then you are putting small amounts of uh, electrical current towards those electrodes so that before the pain signal hits the brain, you're modulating it uh, in route. And so that's kind of the easiest way to, to, to describe it. That's awesome. And, 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 I, and I think that's important for people to understand because patients, therapists, doctors, you know, it's easy to say, let's go ahead and do a trial for a spinal cord stimulator. But I think it's important to understand why, why your pain, you know, might be moderate or maybe modulated somewhat. So when you talk about multimodal pain management or, or um, kind of a comprehensive approach to, to pain management, and, and you've taken somebody who's had X number of surgeries, been to physical therapy, Maybe they've been on opioids, maybe they've been on methadone, whatever. Uh, maybe they've had some epidural steroids. Maybe they've had some medial branch blocks. What, what is your approach to that patient? So I come in, I say, oh, Dr. Jan, I've had four back surgeries. I've got this ridiculous pain. It's killing me. I'm stiff in the morning. I can't walk upstairs. Kind of walk me through A to Z, how you're going to treat that patient. Yeah, well, the first and foremost uh, thing that, that I try to describe is we want to treat the patient, you know, as if they were our own family, okay? You know, you want to walk into the doctor's office and you want to be comfortable. You want to have open lines of communication. So number one is building trust. Um, the other thing that is paramount to this is to essentially ensure that we are treating the patient as a whole, um, there, you know, you, no, no body part nor, um, you know, system within your body works in a vacuum. And so a lot of what we do has to integrate everything. That means how is their mental health? How is their social health? Um, spiritually, are they doing okay? Um, you know, you've got to address all of these issues. It's not just a musculoskeletal issue. It's not just a neurological issue. So, you, so using a multimodal or multidisciplinary approach for pain, we uh, recognize in, acad in academics um, that you can treat the patient better by using multiple modalities at once, not just one thing. So it's not gonna be just an epidural. It's not gonna be just uh, psychiatric evaluation and cognitive behavioral therapy. It may not be just physical therapy. It's likely gonna be a milieu or a combination of these things that we do that's really gonna benefit the patient the most. And, and, and when, you, when you talk about that, kind of discuss the, the, the role of opioids and maybe other medications, gabapentin, veloxetine, what, what other medications do you use and, and, and how do you um, transition people from opioids to some of these other pain uh, treatment modalities? Because the, the real problem, you know, that we see is orthopedic surgeons, we operate on someone, they ask for a refill, they ask for a refill, the next thing you know, 
they're calling every five days asking for a refill. They're either selling the drugs or they're using too much of the drugs, one of the two. They're probably not selling them. So then we have an issue of, oh, wow, now what do we do? So then I say, go see Dr. Jane and, and, and give us a hand in, in sort of detoxing this patient. So, so as opposed to just treating them, and we'll talk about injections and peripheral pain um, treatment, but, but how, how do we get that patient off of opioids? Because that, that is a real problem in today's environment. Absolutely. So I think the first first thing that we have to do is recognize that this is this is not just a an insurance problem or a drug company problem or a doctor problem. This is a societal problem. And so first we have to accept that everybody's got a little bit of culpability in it, and that's okay. Uh, medicine changes over time. If we look back decades and decades of work, there are things that we believed were right that were ultimately proved wrong, but that's okay as long as we learn from it and try to grow. And so I think truly it, you have to really believe in a paradigm shift when talking to patients and saying, hey, listen, yes, I understand you're on opioids. And yes, you thought that they were supposed to help, but yet you're here because they aren't helping. And why is that not helping? Part of it is that because people develop tolerance and then there's no you know, ceiling as to where you can go with opioids. Um, and so if you don't know that you should be rotating opioids or at least trying other non-opioid medications um, like gabapentin or like Cymbalta or amitriptyline and some of these other types of medications, um, you know, I think that you're doing yourself a disservice um, and the patient, um, you're putting the patient at a disadvantage. I think this paradigm shift is not going to happen overnight. Uh, I, I really believe that it's going to take a generation to undo, um, you know, what we did in this country, uh, you know, over 40 years or even longer. Um, again, there's no pointing fingers. I think it's more important to figure out where we've done, where we've done this wrong or where we can improve and just focus on that. That's huge. And I, and I think that's right. I think, I think we have done the community a disservice for whatever reason. And we, we've certainly made a paradigm shift. And when I get my talks in Europe, a lot of guys are doing ACLs and they're giving you a little tramadol, some ibuprofen, and they don't get any narcotics. They just, just well, we just don't prescribe narcotics. So certainly this can be done and, and maybe we need to do more blocks and, and more peripheral nerve treatment. So along these lines, I really wasn't gonna go here, but along these lines, Tell us about fentanyl. What, what, what's fentanyl? Why is everyone dying so, of fentanyl overdose? Yeah, so fentanyl is an opioid uh, that can cause uh, respiratory depression. And so you hear on the news, you know, there's opioids that are laced with fentanyl or sufentanyl or carfentanyl. These are extremely, extremely strong opioids that can cause respiratory depression. And basically, uh, your center for breathing uh, is depressed to a point where you stop breathing. And so this is what you hear about on the news. Uh, there's been a lot of coverage on drugs uh, over the counter, or no, excuse me, street drugs that have been laced with, with medications, are these types of medications, whether they be from the synthetic uh, medications that are coming from overseas or whatever, what have you, but um, it's very dangerous. And so um, you know, when people are coming off of opioids or being weaned maybe from opioids and they still feel pain, a lot of times they turn to street drugs. And some of these street drugs are being laced with extremely potent, powerful medications that are that can kill you. 
that's excellent. And, and, and obviously a big problem and a big problem in the media, but also a big problem in the community. And a day doesn't go by where obviously there's a number of uh, fentanyl related overdoses and some people are very famous to die of fentanyl and some people are kind of less famous, but, but that's right. So I want to ask you and Tyler kind of the same question. And if I can take the spinal cord stimulator and I can place it next to my um, spinal cord in the epidural space and stimulate kind of the biggest nerves, what, what can I do for someone who let's say has uh, localized CRPS or um, peripheral nerve damage, let's say from a trauma, and, and that could be anything from the radial nerve, the saphenous nerve, whatever. Can, can you stimulate those those nerves as well? Is there a way to modulate that pain in, in, in a peripheral nerve as it can, or can it only be done uh, centrally from the lumbar spine? So you can do peripheral nerve uh, stimulation. Uh, a lot of the issues with that is with insurance coverage uh, and what insurances will pay for. Uh, I think spinal cord stimulation is has been a proven modality to, to treat not only complex regional pain syndrome type one, which is where you don't know if there's a specific nerve injury, um, and complex regional pain syndrome type two, where there is a specific nerve injury that has been identified, whether, you know, peripherally. And so um, Tyler and Medtronic do an excellent job of mapping out uh, intraoperatively real time with the patient, um, you know, lightly sedated so they can, so they can talk to us and he can map out uh, whether it be if they have pain in the left leg or the right leg or what distribution. Um, and so in real time, it's pretty incredible to watch. And I think Nick might've had a chance to, to see that as well. Um, it's, it's pretty eye-opening and, and uh, it almost catches your breath because he just turns it on and all of a sudden the patient's like, oh my gosh, I can feel that. What, what is that? So Nick, someone comes in, they're seeing Dr. Jane, they've got chronic low back pain or they have peripheral nerve pain where they have um, peripheral neuropathy from, let's say, type 2, type 1 diabetes. What is your role? Uh, A, how are you going to assess that patient? And what is your role in treatment? Yeah, thank you for the question. You know, similar to what Dr. Jane opened with is we try to approach our patients as if they're a member of our family asking us for information. So the first thing I do is patient education. I need to understand what their level of knowledge is on their condition, what they believe about their condition, so that I can start to break down those barriers. A lot of times people come to me, they've already had first-line imaging, which might be a radiograph, then they go for an MRI, and they get this detailed report that says facet arthropathy, bulging disc, foraminal stenosis, all these things, and you know they think their back's going to fall out of them if they sneeze wrong. So the first thing I have to explain to them is, is look, a lot of these are normal age-related changes with life. There's plenty of people walking around out there that have no pain that if we stuck them in a tube and MRI them, we'd probably find the same thing. So first thing is you got to move away from that catastrophizing language. And I think that's a big shift in medicine is I know the, the healthcare providers, the primary physicians, you all have a busy schedule, but sometimes we need to step back and recognize we can't just throw all these big medical terms at these patients and then you know where they're gonna go next. They're gonna go to Google or they're gonna go to WebMD and then they're gonna be trying to fill out a new will the next day because they think their life's over. So I like to see where is this patient coming from? What do they believe? What are their misconceptions? How could I break those down? So once I lower those barriers, 
Then we do an assessment, you know, typically of the spine, I'm going to look at range of motion of the cervical spine or of the trunk. I'm going to check the, uh, you know, the performance of the extremities. So if they have a lumbar injury, they may have paresthesias, numbness and tingling down the leg. I'm going to see, do they have intact motor function? Are they hypo-reflexive or hyper-reflexive? Are we dealing with a central component or a peripheral component? Once I know all these things, I could start formulating my game plan. Hey, this looks like something that might be coming from a peripheral nerve. Okay, we're going to manage it this way versus this looks like something that's coming from the true spinal column and we need to approach it in a different uh, way, way. So uh, I, that's about it. <laughs> and, and, and how are you, and, and I'll ask Dr. Jane this question next, but how are you going to coordinate your treatment with, with Dr. Jane? So you're going to do your physical therapy. You, you have an assessment and, and we do this in sports. A lot of times where, you know, I'll say, Hey, so-and-so's flying in, he's torn his ulnar collateral ligament. We want to coordinate your PT with his team doctor, um, you know, with the Texas Rangers and their therapist and their strength and conditioning guy. So how are you going to, in pain management and, and clearly a, a multi-dimensional approach, how are you going to coordinate your treatment? And let's talk about low back pain for a minute. And then let's talk about chronic cervical spine pain in a minute. And again, I'm going to ask both you guys, how do you coordinate your treatment with Dr. Jane and then Dr. Jane vice versa? How, how, how are you going to get with Nick to, to figure out your next steps and kind of work through this algorithm? Yep. So step one for us most typically is a physician referral that may come with some sort of imaging and typically the physician's diagnosis that gets me started on my course. If during my examination and testing, I find that there may be something else playing a factor in this patient's condition, that would probably be a pick up the phone and call Dr. Jane situation or shoot him a text. Hey, doc, referral said L4, L4 radiculopathy. I'm also seeing some ankle clonus here and some weird myelopic signs you know, do we need to do some further testing? So typically it's, a, it's as simple as a, as a text message or a phone conversation if something's outside the norm. If things are going to plan and it's a pretty straightforward case, on the 10th visit or 30 days later, uh, the office will receive a progress note from me, basically outlining what we've done with the patient, how they've responded, what improvements they've made, what their remaining deficits are. And if we need to make a change to the plan of care, uh, that's where I would get Dr. Jane involved and say, hey, I'm thinking of maybe let's try some dry needling with some electrical stimulation hooked in to help with this peripheral neuropathy. Uh, let's try this other approach that I learned about in pain neuroscience education. You know, sometimes just educating the person on the components or the concepts of what's called central sensitization versus peripheral sensitization. These are our body's protective measures. I often give the analogy to my patients of a, a car with an alarm system that's turned up way too high. Okay, you know, a cat walks by it and its tail hits and the alarm's going off. Well, that's not what its job is. The job is to supposed to alert to burglars. So when we're in pain, when we've had an injury, sometimes our body turns that sensitivity all the way up to things like CRPS where the touch of fabric on the skin or bed sheets feels like glass shards. In that case, we, we use desensitization maneuvers. We teach them graded exposure to different stimuluses so they can learn that all these things that my, my sensors are feeling in my skin that's being laid up through my spinal cord to my brain, this isn't pain, this isn't a danger. I now need to re-recognize what this stimulus is. And, and it's a long process. It doesn't happen in one session or two sessions. It, it takes place over weeks and months. Uh, but that's kind of the big picture approach with how my interventions with my patients go and the role that Dr. Jane plays in that. 
And, and that, yeah, he did a one. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was going to say he did an excellent job of explaining that. Uh, one of the reasons why we're here today is because we have an excellent, uh, if not the best, relationship with Cora PT uh, in the east, in east Tennessee, uh, in the Tri-Cities, and, and even in the outer lying areas. Uh, Cora PT does an excellent job in identifying uh, industry leaders, um, as well as not only leaders, but those who are effective at communicating um, with the different specialists. And so uh, kudos to the, to the management team that hires all the all-stars that they have in our area. Um, but they make it you know, very easy to reach out. Um, he had mentioned you know, a cell phone, uh, a text message, or a, or a phone call. Uh, honestly, that is the best way still, I think, to get my attention or to get their attention is, hey, shoot them a text. Hey, you free for a quick minute? I'm in between cases. Um, I will be honest, you know, with an interventional pain doctor, a lot of times you may only see a patient a few times in clinic, and then you may do epidurals on them or interventions on them. And a lot of times um, the physical therapists like Nick are actually seeing the patient even more often than you are. And so you have to trust uh, that Nick's got a really a uh, good handle of the situation, a strong rapport with the patient, which he obviously does. Um, and so it ends up being a real symbiotic relationship in trying to, you know, treat the patient uh, using a multimodal approach. And it helps the patient and myself and, and Nick if, if we are keeping open lines of communication. And that goes uh, along with Tyler or even the neurosurgical team. Uh, you know, we, we are lucky being here in East Tennessee that it's a small enough community where we all know each other. Uh, we see each other at the soccer field for our kids' games or at the restaurant on Friday evening. Um, and so we share so many patients. And um, I, I'm happy to be here because people are still nice in this area. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's and for sure. So, and so it really makes my job way easier um, when we all have effective and open lines of communication. I don't know if I said effective open lines communication enough, but I was in the military, so that was beaten down into me in the Navy. <laughs> so, so you would take the information and that, or, or Nick's assessment, and, and, and you may alter your pain approach, or you may alter um, maybe. Because that'll happen sometimes. The therapist will text me, um, and we have a whole group similarly, a core therapist, and they'll say, you know, maybe you want to the shoulder, maybe you want to look at C6, or maybe there's a cervical spine component or a TOS component. And so you would take that information that Nick gave you, maybe you hitch on a text and say, this, this may be something I need to look into, or I may need to change. Um, I approach a little bit because one of the things you said is really important. The patient seeing the therapist three days a week, mm -hmm. you know, my post right. patient sees me mm -hmm. every six weeks. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of missing out on 90% of the visits here. And so somebody who's hands-on is much more applicable to be in a better position to say, look, this is going on or that's going on, et cetera. So you probably do find that information kind of helpful, I would think. Oh, absolutely. And just like you said, um, you know, they've got they've got boots on ground oftentimes more than you do. And so when you build a trust between, you know, the different providers, 
um, that the patient feels more comfortable too. Oh, you know, you know, Nick, or, oh, you talked to Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that that's wonderful. It's not just, oh, Dr. Jane's doing epidurals or he's just putting in stimulators. You know, that's, that's not what we do. Um, it's a component of what we do. Um, but we overarchingly, what we want to do is provide a better healthcare product in East Tennessee and, and, and more so uh, in the surrounding areas. And in order to do that, we've got to have everybody involved. That's excellent. So, Nick, you sent me an article which, which really hit home. Uh, it was very interesting and, and kind of right in my wheelhouse. I'm a sports guy talking about PNA, PNE or uh, pain neuroscience education. So walk us, walk us through your pre-surgical approach and kind of give us the whole story because I found that really interesting and, and actually very helpful. So, so kind of walk it back from the beginning and, and, and tell us what that's about. Absolutely. I just had it pulled up in my uh... – my phone decided to shut down. <laughs> Sorry. That happened. Yeah, absolutely. Technology. Um, you're going to have to give me a minute, guys. I'm sorry. I lost it. That's right. Scotty will edit it. It'll be perfect. Thank you. Just give me one moment. I'm holding my breath. Yeah. Please. please edit He's this. just going to keep on. Let me just keep on prodding you. Hurry. Hurry. Please edit this part out. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Amp up the tension. We're still waiting. That's I do have a question. I might as well just sort of fill the void. Thank and that you. is uh, insurance. <laughs> You're welcome, Nick. It's, it's insurance. Why is it such a sort of a gauntlet to get that indication? Why, why is it so difficult? If we have all these problems over here with drugs and stuff like that, and yet we're dragging our feet over here, I don't, I don't understand why it's so difficult. Yeah, so let's take a let's take a ten thousand uh, uh, foot uh, view from this problem. Um, when you pay into an insurance carrier, uh, they're they have already got your money. And I'm not saying insurances are bad. What I'm saying is, is once they have your money, the incentive is for them to keep their money uh, or keep your money. Excuse me. Yeah, and so um, you know, it's just a little bit of a barrier in terms of trying to get care because they don't want to pay out. Uh, for products or things uh, that you may not need. And so, you know, it, it does become a little bit cumbersome when we have to fight with the insurance carriers, um, you know, because you clearly have an indication for physical therapy. You clearly have an indication for a spinal cord stimulator, but there's somebody on the other line or the other end of the computer just, just clicking no, no, no. Um, or maybe documentation's not enough or they think that there's other things that we ought to try, which is fine. Um, but certainly, it's just, I think it's a bigger uh, problem uh, when we just say, why is insurance an issue? Uh, it's not that cut, clear cut. Um, and there's probably 10 answers to give. Uh, I want to make sure I play it politically uh, safe here. Uh, but, but, but the reality is, is the way the insurances uh, work is that they've got the money. They don't want to pay for overutilization of, of the system. Um, so that they can keep their their costs down and their the amount of money that they're spending on on each person. Uh, is there progress being made? Uh, do you find that the timeline is just getting a little pressed a little bit better? You know, I mean, the decisions are being made a little quicker. I, I find that that it's true, especially because with spinal cord stimulation, um, the, the number of indications have expanded and the amount of research has just bloomed. Um, Tyler's been doing this for a few years longer than I have, and I know he's seen uh, not only the indications uh, grow, um, but also just uh, you know the number of cases that we do and the insurances approve it because 
when you've got patients that are now functional a little bit more and they can lose weight, you know, all of a sudden they're coming off of their other medications and um, they're living healthier lifestyles. So um, there's, there's indirect and direct ways that it's getting better. All right. Uh, uh, Nick, are you uh, caught up now? I'm informed again. Yes. <laughs> Take yes, it away. Uh, very, interesting, uh, very interesting research article just came out. And, uh, you know, kind of in the evolving field of pain neuroscience education, which really uh, came to the forefront around 2010, 2012, is when we started looking a little bit more about pain and how pain is managed. And some of the concepts I talked on earlier about central sensitization and, and peripheral sensitization. And, and so what this uh, research article aimed to learn is can more earlier education to the patient uh, have a more positive impact on outcomes? And, and basically more simply said is if we teach the patient about their neuroanatomy, if we teach them about what's causing their pain or, or even how pain is perceived within the brain, can that down the road uh, lead that patient to better outcomes? And, and what the research found is that, yes, it, it can actually help in a few different ways. Not that necessarily they'll have less disability than groups that don't receive the education, but following surgical intervention, the groups that received a 30-minute session with a provider, a clinician, were uh, seen to have less office visits with doctors and pursued less uh, diagnostic testing after their surgery. So really what that tells us is we need to set realistic expectations to these patients. Look, when, when, when Tyler and Dr. Jane put this pain stimulator in, it's not gonna be that we flip a switch and your pain is 100% gone that you've been battling with. But if we could see a, a marked reduction and an improved quality of life, that's our goal. So now that patient has an expectation that when I come out of surgery, I'm not supposed to be pain-free because if they have pain, they're going to think it didn't work. It failed when that's not the case. Uh, the, the article actually found that patients that received just that one 30-minute session of education at the one-year mark had spent 45% less money in additional testing. And we're talking thousands of dollars. I think that the difference was between two and four, $2,045. Uh, and then at the three-year mark, the group that received that one 30-minute session of education spent 60% less on healthcare costs, pursuing further testing, trying to find out why they're still having pain. So again, no, no difference in uh, functional outcomes or ability to do more, but the people just had a better grasp of understanding and they were, they were better able to accept why they are still feeling the way they are. And, and, and I guess the follow-up question would be, so what's discussed in that 30-minute visit? Or if you have a number of pre- and post-op visits discussing pain patterns, expectations, what, what, what's discussed? What should, what should we talk about? Absolutely. You know, I kind of touched on that earlier. I, I would say probably 75% of my education is on decatastrophizing language, layman's terms, um, trying to convince them that their back is not going to shoot out of them when they bend over. Um, and that, uh, you know, letting them understand the neuroanatomy. I'll pull up visual aids. I, I, I love to get on the computer. We have a, a fantastic program that we use at Core Physical Therapy called MedBridge. There's some phenomenal patient education videos on there that really take a very complex topic and they break it down to very simple terms. 
And I just put the computer in front of the patient. I say, watch this. And after you watch it, let's talk about any questions you have. And, and you could just see how much their eyes open up. Because like we said earlier, if you all are lucky, you might get 10 or 15 minutes in a room with a person. I get the luxury of a full hour, sometimes three days a week. So um, I'm able to spend a lot more time with them. And, and they just may never have had that time and, and that thing explained to them. So uh, going back to your original question, that, that's what that session would look like is let's review neuroanatomy. Let's review what all these different terms mean and try to help you understand what they are. Let's explain what a realistic expectation for pain in your life is. We can't have no pain or we wouldn't survive as a species very long. Pain plays an important role in our life, right? So uh, I, I like to let people know that we want to see that your pain becomes manageable so that now you can go work, so that now the single mom can carry her kids and the groceries in. Not that you're going to have absolutely no pain, but that you're going to have more manageable pain and that you could live your life. Um, we also teach them techniques to help them manage their pain in alternative ways, whether it not be just running to the medicine cabinet to grab ibuprofen, but can we use electrical stimulation applied externally, not through the spine? Can I use ice? Can I use heat? Can I use soft tissue massage? There's a million different things we could teach people to lean on those versus going for the opiates, going for the NSAIDs and things like that. That's excellent. So when we talk about Dr. Jane, some, some of these procedures, some of these procedures seem to be more invasive and some of these procedures seem to be a little less invasive. Um, talk to us about a, a couple things and, and, and I want to talk about garden variety low back pain. So, you know, a huge problem in America. Number two reason for office visits besides the common cold, low back pain. And, and so, and, and a beautiful segue. So, so both you guys, how, how do, you know, Mr. Jones comes in, he's 35 pounds overweight. He's a construction worker. He says, my back's been sore now for 14 months. Five years ago, it was sore. It got better. What, what do we do? How, how do we work it up and how do we treat it? Yeah, you know, just just like you uh, talked, just giving us, giving us some uh, history, initial history. You know, we want to ask some of those same questions about how long it's been going on. Ask for any red flag signs. Uh, you know, is there any muscle weakness or, you know, has he had any change or, or loss of a bowel or bladder? You know, once you can get past the idea that there's no red flags that you need to be worried about an emergency, then you can really kind of dig deep into what's going on. You know, is this a musculoskeletal uh, strain of, of uh, the muscles, the tendons and, and the um, ligaments, or is this coming from the nerves or the spinal nerves as they exit the fecal sac? Um, are they being impinged or pinched causing like burning uh, or numb, uh, burning or numbness, tingling going down the legs? So these are some of the questions that you want to kind of tease out to find out what truly is the pain that we're dealing with. And then once you can kind of tease that out, um, you start thinking about, well, what have they tried? Have they tried medications? Have they tried over-the-counter medications or home exercise protocol? Have they tried physical therapy? Um, have they tried acupuncture, even chiropractic work? Um, have they had a history of surgery before in their back? Or have they tried epidurals in the, in the past and have they helped or not? And so once you go through those alleviating factors, aggravating factors, and what has helped in the past and and, and you know, what their expectations are as well, uh, you can kind of come up with a plan in terms of how you want to treat them. Now, 
I, I don't go to opioids right off the bat. I think, uh, um, and that's probably in the, the industry standard nowadays. Uh, I approach the patient as a, as a whole, and certainly the insurance company appreciates that because they're not going to approve of anything uh, if you don't try the basic stuff first, um, whether it be over-the-counter uh, medications, uh, some non-scheduled medications like uh, meloxicam or naproxen, or, or excuse me, or like uh, uh, duloxetine. Uh, and then certainly, you know, physical therapy p- plays a huge, huge role um, in the treatment of lower back pain. Uh, you know, I think physical therapy is a foundation uh, for which everybody should have some involvement with at some point in their life. I'm a big believer in going to physical therapy for annual reminder sessions on the exercises that you should be doing to keep your core strength um, up where it is. And so it's important that these patients are plugged in um, to make sure that yes, they may do home exercise protocol, but are they doing it with the, with, you know, the right motions? Because sometimes we forget, um, I do physical therapy for a shoulder problem that I had in high school. That was a few decades ago. <laughs> and, uh, I still do those exercises. I still see a physical therapist once a year to go over those exercises, to make sure I'm doing them right. Um, they are the experts in in a lot of this and we want to utilize that. And so, um, those are some of the things that I ask first, uh, before we say, okay, well, let's go straight to an epidural. That's, that's not the way you want to do that. That's not providing a value, uh, based care, uh, which is a lot, which, which is a buzzword that a lot of uh, institutions use. Um, but so that's how we approach as, as a total um, patient. That's excellent. And, and moving up a notch, let's talk about a little bit more invasive things that you guys do. Um, and, and, and certainly um, kyphoplasty, SI joint fusions, et cetera. I mean, orthopedists do them, but I think you guys have a, a I don't want to use the word smoother, but maybe a much more, uh, less aggressive approach in terms of the conventional surgery. So, t- so talk to us about kyphoplasty. Tell us what it is and, and, and then kind of discuss care and treatment before we move on to how you guys uh, fuse the SI joint. So those are both kind of fascinating topics. Yeah. So, you know, interventional pain uh, medicine or interventional pain management, there's a lot of permutations of these words. Um, The idea is that we do minimally invasive uh, techniques in order to improve function in life. And so kyphoplasty is one thing that we use where uh, if there's a compression fracture in the vertebrae, we insert a, a, a... basically a needle into that uh, vertebral body. And then we uh, pump it up with a balloon and then fill it with cement and let that cement settle. And actually it relieves the compressive forces and compressive pain um, in the lower back or wherever it may be. Um, and so you'll, you'll see a dramatic improvement in, in pain scores or even function. And so kyphoplasty is a wonderful modality. I know Tyler, um, we've been working with Medtronic uh, with their system. If you want to expand upon that a, a touch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So w- what's cool about kyphoplasty is Dr. Jane just said so eloquently that what I, what I found fascinating about it is these patients, they have localized pain. They can, they can literally, you can palpate their spinous process, and usually it's very evident that they have a compression fracture there. So 
And they, they, most of the time, if you can get any kind of height restoration and you get good cement fill, the patient almost immediately gets significant pain relief. Um, and it's pretty, pretty cool to see the immediate relief that the patients get and, and even minimal cement, um, three to four cc's of cement, sometimes higher, uh, gives them adequate pain relief, which is really, really neat. So that's awesome. And, and, and Nick, somebody comes in, they've had a kyphoplasty. What is the post-op protocol and what's the rehab protocol? Yeah. Uh, so again, back to education, what to expect, you know, what, what things they need to be doing, smoking cessation. Uh, and then typically from a rehab perspective, we're trying to improve cardiovascular function. Uh, a lot of times these patients have been flexed forward. They might have poor diaphragm activation. They may not be able to take a deep inspiration. So we'll work on some thoracic mobility, sitting up tall, getting to use your primary breathing muscles, moving away from those accessory muscles. Uh, typically some sort of treadmill program. That's about the most functional exercise we could do is walking. So I'll start them on the treadmill, make sure they're doing that with proper posture and they're safe. And then I'll teach them to do that in their home exercise program. Uh, we'll look at the extremities to teach them some safe movements with their arms and their shoulders. If we're talking about an upper thoracic or, or maybe the legs, if it's in the lower thoracic region, uh, typically we just, we, we find the deficits and we address, we address those. They're going to be different for each person, but I think standard fair boilerplate exercises would be uh, breathing strategies, treadmill, and just mobility. And, and, and lifting, lifting as well, safe lifting mechanics. Sorry to interrupt. And, and, you know, one of the problems we see with that patient population, and I don't do not my patient population, but, and, and my partners is, you know, they'll, they'll have a kyphus, they'll have, um, you know, a, a definite forward posture. Is there any, any benefit into posterior shoulder or paraspinal muscle strengthening, mm -hmm. um, whether it's e-stem or it's taping mm -hmm. or it's whatever the, whatever the modality might be, do they get better as their posture improves? Yeah, yeah, certainly. And you, you touched on a great point too, the, the role of, of balance, right? Their center of mass has been forward for all this time and, and now they may be more upright. So uh, yeah, strengthening the posterior muscles, kind of the spinal erectors, the glutes, things that help hold them up tall uh, is definitely going to be a large role. Also teaching them safe transfers, you know, teach them how to get out of bed without flexing and rotating, teach them what's called the log roll maneuver, uh, how to bend over and lift things so that they don't compromise another segment in their spine. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of education there, a lot of strengthening of the muscles. Taping can play a role. Taping gives you a little bit of a tug on the skin. It's like a gentle reminder, hey, stop slouching, right? So uh, I don't think it's going to fix your problem, but it's, it's definitely a, a great uh, tool to use. And, and, and kind of moving forward, Dr. Jay, tell us, because to me, this is very interesting. How, how, do, you, how do you fuse the SI joint or how, how do you do it minimally invasively? Yeah, so, so the SI joint is, is between the sacrum um, and, and basically your ilium or, or your, uh, basically your hip bone, let's call it. And basically what it is, is um, you, there's a very small amount of movement that you get in that joint. Uh, oftentimes it's one to two millimeters, maybe three to four. And you see uh, dysfunction in the sacroiliac joint uh, 
after a lot of times after people have had fusion of the spine um, at multiple levels or a level above and you get adjacent level disease. And so what's happening is, is once one level of the spine is fused, all of a sudden that level is no longer moving. And so it puts increased load pressure onto the sacroiliac joint. And so traditionally uh, the sacroiliac joint has been fused uh, with screws using a larger uh, incision. Uh, now there are companies, uh, and Medtronic, I believe, uh, does have a system as well, uh, where you can fuse the sacroiliac joint uh, with pedicle screws, um, and it takes a very small inf uh, incision. We're talking uh, somewhere on the order of two inches or less. And traditionally, that was uh, something that uh, I know multiple companies in the industry have really been work working on is trying to get these procedures to be done minimally invasive um, because we know that the less cutting you do generally that means uh, better outcomes or at least a shorter hospital stay uh, and that means that you get to go home faster um, and so uh, you know then you get to avoid you know being in the hospital and getting a pneumonia or a urinary tract infection or how about just being lonely. The hospital is not that fun of a place that you want to be long-term. And so, um, you know, doing, you know, therapy after, you know, outside as an outpatient basis, basis versus inpatient basis, if, if we can handle it, I think is, is the best approach. That's excellent. So, so what, what, what's in the future? What, I mean, Dr. Jane, very smart, forward-thinking uh, physician. What, what is, what is multimodal pain management, what does multidisciplinary pain management have in the future? Is there, is there going to be a, a digital, like, like in, 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 in orthopedics, pretty soon we're going to have virtual reality, total joints. Guys are just going to put on VR glasses. The computer is going to say, do this. It's going to be like, you know, your Tesla, the thing just drives you home or takes you from the bar and gets you home. You don't even have to be awake. So <laughs> what, what, what's in the future for, for, for pain management? Yeah, so immediately, you know, we use existing technology and expand the indications for which we already know it's being used in Europe and uh, getting those insurance carriers to recognize it, uh, just like we spoke before, to make sure that we can treat pain, not just with medications or not just with physical therapy, um, but we can really use uh, a multimodal approach. You know, what I see the future of, of interventional pain management's role is really in the minimally invasive market. Um, and so as uh, different companies across the country and the world are coming up with new technologies to do some of the same processes that we're doing right now, but do it with a smaller incision, a shorter hospital stay, um, that is where the secondary future is going. Now, if you look even in 10 more years um, at where we're going um, in terms of uh, pain relief, you know, then we're starting to talk about, uh, you know, AI and, and bigger things that I probably haven't even close to wrap my head around and using virtual reality products um, to improve pain and, and turn it into a mainstream. Um, I don't, I think that, you know, addressing pain, um, 
in your everyday life and not just when you go to the doctor's office is probably going to be where we're going um, because people want access to care um, and we want to give them that access of care without overutilization of, of that access. And so, um, but part of that means that we may need to have uh, artificial intelligence um, with algorithms that understand you know, your vital signs and why your vital signs are up. Well, that's because you're in pain or these kinds of things. And we all know about wearable devices and uh, the collection of big data. Um, it's already been happening for the last you know, 10 to 20 years. So I think that's where it's going to expand. So if I could add to that, I, I know there's some, some providers in, in, the, in the field of dentistry that are starting to use virtual reality for their patients as well. And, and those patients require less uh, you know, sedation, uh, less Novocaine, just by putting on virtual reality goggles and doing some sort of calming technique before the procedures. No, and I, and I think that's right. Um, so, Nick, what's in the future? What, how's physical therapy going to change? And, and what's the progression going to be as we kind of hit this um, digital environment running? Well, you know, uh, of all the bad things that came out of COVID, there were some things that pushed us into into positive territory. And I think that was the, the rush to uh, telehealth. I, I really think that's going to be a large role in, the, in, the, in physical therapy moving forward. An hour a day, three days a week is a lot for people, especially if you have a job, if you have young children, if you have financial restrictions. And what we're starting to see is insurances are starting to accept telehealth. So I could do an initial evaluation on a patient, either in clinic or through telehealth. I could provide them home exercise programs through that uh, program I mentioned earlier called MedBridge, which gives them videos of exercises to do. I can interact with my patient through that portal as well. So I, I really see the future of physical therapy uh, becoming maybe more virtual-based, uh, more remote access through the patient. Um, I'd like to get to a point where, and this has been a big shift in PT that we'd like to see what Dr. Jane does, which I love to hear you say that is annual checkups. I mean, we go to dentist two to three times a year, or at least we're supposed to, even if nothing's wrong, right? So that's one small part of our body. What about the rest of the body? Why do we not go see a movement specialist, which is an orthopedic physical therapist, to maybe catch that shoulder pain that's just a little subacromial thing right now before it becomes a full-fledged rotator cuff tear? You know, um, that's where I would like to see the future go into having one physical therapist for life, just like you have your one doctor for life. I go see Dr. Nick every year to get my checkup. He shows me how to progress my back exercises. We do some stuff virtually for a while, and then I go and do it on my own. That's where I would like to see the industry go. That's excellent. And Tyler, what, what, what's, what's up for Medtronic? What, what, are we going Bluetooth? Or what, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, so so I uh, definitely don't want to get myself in trouble with releasing info before the, I guess. Oh, come on, man. But, but <laughs> we, we definitely have some cool stuff in, in the pipeline. Yes, I think remote, remote uh, programming is coming. So we'll be able to program these patients remotely, I would say. I don't want to give them a timeline, but it's coming soon. Uh, we have some closed loop technology that's that's coming out. I don't know when. It's 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 in the near future, three to six months out. And essentially what that is, is the, these, it's gonna, there's gonna have a sensor 
type lead in it, and it's going to measure the the patient's physiological response to every movement they have. So it's going to keep them in that therapeutic window, which is really going to change the 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 way the whole uh, neuromodulation in, industry is viewed. So some exciting stuff. The technology, the cool thing with Medtronic is as being the largest medical device company in the world, is they're always you know researching, engineering, developing, uh, and and throwing all the money back in to the patients for better outcomes. So I'm excited to be a part of that. I'm excited to, to, to partner with Cora as well and Dr. Jane and, and Pain Medicine Associates. It's, as, as we all say, we all work together and uh, it put the patients first and there's some exciting times ahead, so. I, I really appreciate that. So, so since you're up, Tyler, what, what do we forget? What should we have talked about that we didn't talk about? I, I think we covered it. I, I, I will say one thing on the, the kyphoplasty thing, not, not to bring that back up specifically, but Dr. Jane touched on it a little bit, and, and Nick, you did as well. I, I think the one thing that I would like to, to point out there is, is treating the kyphoplasty patients immediately is, is key. And the reason why, we call it the downward spiral. If you don't treat those patients, they essentially are going to lay in bed and it's the downward spiral. They develop pneumonia, as Nick Nick discussed, and and then you know, unfortunately, they, they end up not recovering from it. So it's such a simple thing. It's bringing awareness and 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 having these patients treated in a proper manner, and and with Dr. Jane, and then to Nick and and his staff. So I think that's an important uh, thing that. I was going to bring up, but uh, it, it, we just went down a different route there. But uh, otherwise, man, I, this was some good stuff. I appreciate you guys having us. Thank you very much. And Nick, what do we forget? What should we what should we have talked about? And we kind of dropped the ball. You got me on that one, Doc. I think we got it all. <laughs> very thorough conversation. Thank you, and thank you for your time. And Dr. Jane, is there something we should have? You know, you 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 have a significant number of, of disease processes you treat. We talked about low back pain, CRPS, but, but what, 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 should, what else should we have talked about or what's out there that we should know about that we want to tell everybody? Yeah, so two, two points that I wanted to, to leave everybody at home with. Uh, number one is uh, preventative medicine and a portion of that is physical therapy um, and using Cora. Um, I'm extremely happy uh, working alongside of them over the last couple of years. Um, so that was one point I really wanted to drive home. Uh, the other thing is the indications for, for spinal cord stimulation. And this is no, no means an exhaustive list, but I think this will encompass a, a lot of what people are, are questioning. Uh, a lumbar radiculopathy or, or cervical radiculopathy or thoracic radiculopathy, complex regional pain syndrome, like we discussed, post-laminectomy uh, syndrome or failed back syndrome, um, degenerative disc disease, we can, uh, you know, stimulate using different um, uh, patterns. We also have peripheral neuropathies and phantom limb pain, ischemic limb pain, uh, chest pain or angina, shingles, uh, diabetic peripheral neuropathy we talked about. And I mean, the list keeps going as, as we expand uh, what we're doing in the industry and specifically with Medtronic. I'm, I'm extremely excited uh, to be at this point in this section of time because um, it's truly, truly been a blessing to work alongside these people and, and see the patients get better. That's excellent. Well, I want to thank all you guys. I mean, this, this really was, was great. I mean, jam-packed, a lot of information, uh, a little edgy, which is great. 
and and certainly lively. So you the three of you guys were were absolutely uh, awesome, giving East Tennessee a uh, a bright star here. So I want to thank you guys, Scotty. You get it. You always have a question at the end. I do. You have some some ingenious thing to say. So we I, need I do, and 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 I have a new verb. It's decatastrophizing. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> Although I had a hard time spelling that, and and I went out to Medtronic's and Medtronic. See, I put an S on it. It's not Medtronic. No, FYI, one hundred and fifty <laughs> countries, three hundred and fifty locations, and then you got that. It, I mean, it, I'm yeah. I was tootling around the website. They're everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, largest company in the world. Med- nobody knows about it. It's all about it's like, That's right. Oh, check it out. Hey, I do have a question. If if I if I said, hey, I'm listening to this and, and I'm just going, wow, this is great stuff. How would I get a hold? I'll start with you, uh, Dr. Jane. How do I get a hold of you? Yeah, so if you're in East Tennessee, sir, we are a referral-based, uh, you know, interventional pain service or, or pain medicine uh, uh uh, business or private practice, excuse me. And so we are referral only. So whether it be your primary care doctor or your physical therapist or chiropractor uh, or neurosurgeon or orthopedic surgeon, whoever it is, we, we, we deal with uh, referrals um, mostly because it's helpful in gathering information and data and make sure we're getting the appropriate patients. Um, now, if you're, you know, uh, outside of East Tennessee, um, you can certainly fly in. We'll take care of you. Uh, but I would say speak to your primary care doctor. Go onto the Medtronic website uh, or the Cora website. Um, look it up. See what's out there. Um, you know, be careful. The Internet has good things and bad things. Uh, so whatever source you're using, make sure it's a reputable source. The Medtronic site is is perfect. It's easily uh, navigatable. Um, and so I, I uh, refer my patients to that as well. And that's a handoff to you there, uh, Tyler. How do they get a hold of you? And, and, and I love the fact that I could go out there and there's an 800 number and I can say, hey, I'm here and I want to be able to do X, Y, Z. I heard this great podcast with these great guys. So right. how do they get a hold of you? So here, here locally, obviously every office being here 12 years, I did the spine and neurosurgery stuff prior to the, the neuromodulation. So everybody around here, you know, hands out my card number, et cetera. But yeah, if, if they called the 1-800 number with Medtronic, Medtronic customer service would definitely pass their information along to me. Um, I get a lot of phone calls from prospective uh, patients about spinal cord stimulators. So if they call the the direct number, if they're, yeah. if they're not local here and somehow they get redirected to me, um, they will give them my number, contact information, and I'm happy to discuss anything with them. So yeah. That's great. And and Nick, you, Nick, how do they get a hold of you? I think if you play that in Scrabble, the game is just over. Oh, you yeah, yeah, like when. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, no, I'm, I, I believe yeah, no, it's in there somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so obviously the easiest way is uh, just go to corephysicaltherapy.com. Uh, you know, I believe now we're in, I think, up to 10 states, 260 different locations. Uh, depending on your state, you may have direct access rights, meaning you can come in and be evaluated and treated for periods of 30 to 90 days without a referral, which is very nice. So rather than jumping through the hoops of the primary care to the orthopedist, and then by the time I get you, it's two months later, in some states you can come direct access. But, you know, always check with corephysicaltherapy.com, find out where we are. Most likely if you're in the Southeast, we've got a clinic near you. Well, there you go, man. That, that's a great segue into corephysicaltherapy.com. Remember to go out there to corephysicaltherapy.com. So I'm going to read this. Comprehensive, compassionate, and close by. Right there. It's on the website right there. 
You nailed it, Nick. Dr. Rick, you are great again. All of you guys, thank you very much for being on In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy.